the reality of it is, is that most of these systems are accessible in one way or the other. You know, you can, you can spend a lot of money on uh, strict policies and procedures and controls uh, only to have them sort of breached by somebody walking in with removable media or a USB stick. You're listening to KBCast. The cybersecurity podcast for all executives. Cutting through the jargon and hype to understand the landscape where risk and technology meet. Now, here's your host, Carissa Breen. Welcome, Marty, to the show. I'm really excited to have you here today because there's something that I'd like to hear your thoughts, your opinions on a recent ransomware attack. Uh, now, I know it's been a one year anniversary since that attack, but before we get into the specifics of that, we always like to start our podcast off with talking about you and your journey. So please, Marty, walk us through, where did you sort of start your career? And so how did you get into what you're doing now? Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you for having me. Um, so I started my, my career as an industrial control systems engineer. So I designed, maintained, and installed the computerized systems that run our critical infrastructure uh, for probably about uh, 10 years, and then was recruited by the United States government shortly after 9-11 to start doing cybersecurity in this area. So I worked for a combination of the U.S. Department of Energy and was the uh, longest-serving director of what the Department of Homeland Security in the U.S. called the Industrial Control Systems Cyber Emergency Response Team. Uh, I left DHS in 2017 and was uh, in an organization that was an international standards development organization, so working on the technical standards for these types of environments, and then uh, joined Tenable in 2019. Wow, that was quite a, a long uh, title that you sort of referenced before. There's definitely um, a lot going on in there. I'm really curious, though. So you've obviously got quite a large government background. I'm keen to understand what the transition was, like working government to then working more in the, the private sector. And the my, my second point to that would be, what are some of like the key insights that you can share with our audience today from that experience of the transition? Yeah, absolutely. The uh, you know the transition from private sector to the government and back uh, was relatively easy. Most of my government service was spent interacting or interfacing with our my private sector counterparts. So our uh, our team was very very focused on education and awareness. Uh, with our government uh, and industry partners, so so it was uh, the transition was relatively easy for me to make. From a lessons learned perspective, I think the biggest lesson that I learned is that you know government cannot uh, secure these types of systems on their own. I mean, many of these uh, systems and environments are operated and owned by private sector companies, right? So it really does have to be a true partnership between industry and government. Would you say, uh, I agree, but would you say that they are sort of working in lockstep and in tandem or do you think there's still room for growth perhaps on that front? I think there's always room for growth. You know, I think different uh, governments around the world uh, are at different sort of uh, stages of maturity, I guess, with, with regards to the work that's going on in the industrial control system cybersecurity space. And, you know, going back to the, the anniversary of the uh, ransomware incident, you know, I think that, that incidents such as the Colonial Pipeline incident 
uh, really underscore the need for that uh, participation and collaboration. No, you're absolutely right. So it's actually interesting. Uh, so so Pam, who works in your you know head of PR for for Tenable in the APAC region, uh, she reached out to me. It was interesting timing because I was looking to interview someone about critical infrastructure because I think I mean in Australia a lot of like the legislation that has changed, uh, and I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on the Colonial Pipeline ransomware attack. So if you wouldn't mind, Marty, perhaps people who are unfamiliar um, because it did happen in the United States uh, for the Australian audience, could you sort of just give a high-level summary of like what happened? Yeah, I certainly can. So Colonial Pipeline is a about a 5,000-mile-long uh, pipeline that transports uh, fuel such as gasoline or diesel fuel up the east coast of, of the United States. Uh, and last year at about this time, they had a ransomware attack within their uh, IT environment that caused them to shut the pipeline down for six days. So we saw uh, long lines at the gas station, um, many stations running out of fuel, sort of panic buying. And uh, it was definitely sort of front page news uh, during that time. Wow, six days. So how do you think people, how do people respond to that? Like it's quite a long time, right? And like, when you're dealing with consumers and you're dealing with like gas stations, like it, it probably even feels a lot longer than reality of six days, right? So how were people, were they, were they angry? Were they frustrated? Do they understand inherently what was happening? So they had a level of empathy or not really? You know, I don't live in that particular region, but what I saw from the reporting coming out of the region was that, uh, you know, people were definitely concerned about the shortages that, that were happening. And I think that uh, during and after the event, you know, the interest in why it happened has been um, a kind of a learning moment for the entire uh, industry in order to you know understand that these cybersecurity uh, risks and challenges can result in these types of shortages in in the critical infrastructure chain. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. From the interview that I saw, they identified the problem, which was didn't have multi. Uh, multi-factor authentication. Is that correct? They haven't shared a lot of the, the details of, of what went on in, in specifics, but we are, uh, my understanding is that there was a, an account that was able to be breached that was the initial infection vector. That's right. Yeah, because I was, uh, yeah, I was watching it, and then I was sort of going through to say like, this is quite a, a, a rudimentary control, right? So, do you think that that was a bit of maybe alarm bells for people to say, well, like that was an oversight. I guess that these things happen, but because of something that is quite basic and fundamental, very easy way to get in. Do you think that maybe that people had to start going internally and looking at like introspection about their own companies perhaps? Oh, I certainly think that it caused um, other organizations to take a hard look at how they were addressing the basics within with their cybersecurity fundamentals. So, you know, I feel I feel a little bit badly for companies in Colonial's position that you know, you know they have so many different systems. You know, they have a, a very extensive IT system and and an IT set of uh, you know, practitioners or security professionals that keep watch on them. But then when you start to look at some of these what I would call ancillary or adjacent systems, such as the billing environment that 
that ultimately you know was was breached you know these systems can easily fall off the radar of the mainstream security organization and when you overlook uh, some of these these systems uh, you know, uh, of course, if the attackers find them, they they use that and leverage that foothold. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So the other thing that I saw as well is the interview with the CEO that did with the Senate. Now, I was watching his body language. I'm curious to know what you think. Would you say he was rattled by what happened? Because I mean, like no CEO goes out and thinks, oh, well, yeah, yeah of course we were breached. Like there's a level of uh, responsibility when you're at that level, as well as potential shame, like, oh my gosh, can't believe this happened. And there was six days of, you know, we, we couldn't get back online, all these types of thoughts. Like, I'm curious to hear from your perspective uh, as a practitioner to maybe go go inside what, what he was sort of going through during that time. You know, I can't, in, I can't recall the specifics of, of the interview or the testimony that the Colonial Pipeline CEO gave, but I can tell you from experience, uh, being on Capitol Hill myself during uh, testimony by Homeland Security officials or even the testimony of our own CEO recently in front of the uh, House Homeland Security Committee, that, you know, the the lawmakers are asking very uh, tough questions often right so it can be a, it can be a stressful uh, type of interview um, and of course I, I think that they're always um, looking to put their best foot forward so since it's a year on would you say I mean in your experience that companies have learned the importance of securing critical infrastructure now I mean, it's unfortunate that things like this have to happen to perhaps draw attention to oh okay well I better start looking at my own company. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that events like this certainly do help um, educate other companies that may not have paid quite as much attention to the, the cybersecurity, especially within these operational technology, you know, or critical infrastructure systems. Um, ultimately, each company is making their uh, investment decisions based upon their own risk appetite. So some companies you know, take a very serious and hard look at the cybersecurity and they, they don't, um, you know, they, they don't allow any risk to remain. And other companies, I think, get the impression that, oh, this won't happen to me. And so I think as we see the number of ransomware events increasing uh, across the globe, you know, it, it helps to kind of underscore that, you know, this can happen to you. And, you know, going back to some of our discussions earlier, you know, if you do a good job of the basics, you know, you do the cybersecurity fundamentals right, you significantly um, increase the amount of effort that an attacker has to make uh, to breach your system, right? And that's what we're trying to do here is we're trying to raise the cost for whether it's a cyber criminal, whether it's a nation state actor, we're trying to raise the cost for the attacker so that they essentially no longer have a motivation to to try to attack you. So you raised some interesting points in there. One of the things when you're saying, you know, like obviously like basic controls, right? Now, I think like if you look at this in theory, if you look at, I don't know, patch management, in theory, it's like, oh, this is really easy to do. But then like doing it in a company is quite hard to do, right? Because if it was so easy, we wouldn't still have the problems that we still have today, right? So do you have sort of any sort of insight around like doing rudimentary controls that, 
there is still, I guess it's still hard to do. On paper, it's easy, but then doing it within an organization, even to what you touched on before, there's other systems, it's quite easy to have that oversight, right? I really love your uh, example of patch management in this case, because if you look at these industrial control system environments, these operational technology environments, Many of them are are legacy installations. You know, they haven't they haven't been touched in maybe twenty or more years. You know, we're so used to sort of Patch Tuesday coming out, and uh, everybody in the uh, IT security organization rushes out to to deploy patches to all of the computers, and and it kind of just happens almost automatically. Well, to update perhaps some of the devices in a substation or in a water pumping station. You have to send men and women out in a pickup truck, essentially, to go and, and update these, these industrial devices. So you're right. Something that looks relatively easy on paper can actually be uh, quite challenging to implement and take significant resources to implement. So I guess because it requires like a lot of like manual dexterity for some of these like controllers, right? Like they say, oh, it's not connected to the internet. It's like some $30 million controller that they've got, which makes sense because it's not connected to the internet, which makes it easier um, or not easier to hack. Um, But then of course, you've got social engineering problems. Uh, Then you've got problems because it is so old. You've got other issues that have that downstream impact. So how do you find that balance though, when it comes to critical infrastructure? Because I mean, I do get both sides to the story, but I I really want to hear it from your perspective. You know, when uh, we talk to some companies, you know, they talk about the fact that their industrial environments are completely isolated and and air-gapped, and I'm using air quotes around the air-gapped term there. The the reality of it is, is that most of these systems are accessible in one way or the other. You know, you you can spend a lot of money on uh, strict policies and procedures and controls uh, only to have them sort of breached by somebody walking in with removable media or a USB stick or a vendor coming in and plugging a laptop in during some sort of routine maintenance on the system. So in my opinion, and and my opinion has shifted over the years, in, in my opinion, it's better, I think, to have controlled and monitored uh, interconnectivity between these systems so that we can have a real-time indication of the cyber health of the system. You can put pretty strict, uh, even uh, one-way data protection devices in place to protect people from uh, breaking into the environment, but you need to be able to uh, have the visibility into these systems so that when things start to go wrong, you can quickly take remediation action. Why do you think your opinion uh, has shifted over the years? Has there anything that's been that comes to mind that's caused that? Yeah, I think that it was just the number of, of events that continue to happen even in isolated environments, right? We, when, when I was with the government, we saw uh, incidents continue to, to occur uh, no matter if the environment was isolated or not. And, you know, I gave you the example of the vendor plugging the laptops in. You know, when uh, somebody does maintenance on these kinds of systems, typically they call the the vendor of the, the devices in, and they may plug the same laptop in that they've plugged into 10 other facilities in the same week. So if that 
system is is infected with with malware they just kind of spread the uh, malware along with them as they go on their service route and do you think there's any sort of governance so if they if you're using an external vendor to do that and it's infected they like do they have like governance layer to ensure that they're not then you know infecting multiple machines for example or like what's your opinion on that some do so the you know the 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 end user the customer if you want to call them that the critical infrastructure owner and operator can definitely have service level agreements and contractual uh, clauses in there that require the vendor to do certain uh, implement certain security controls. So, so yes, some of the vendors do a very good job of that. But I think that as you get out into maybe more uh, rural areas or or smaller um, environments, then sometimes those tend to go by the wayside. So as you've explained before, Marty, as you go into like rural, smaller areas, uh, perhaps that, you know, the guard goes down. Would you say that that is part of their service level agreement that's covered? Like, hey, you have to do X, Y, and Z um, before coming on site and doing this. Do you think that's, that's documented, but perhaps they just don't follow it anyway? Or do you think like that's not even covered at all? I think it depends. It's hard to make a generalization across all companies. So in certain companies, the, those those procedures certainly are very well documented and they're followed no matter the size of the company or you know how geographically disparate the um, installed environment looks like. I just tend to think that you know smaller organizations tend to struggle. You know, they they struggle with the amount of uh, financial, um, you know, aid they can put into their cybersecurity environment. And in some cases, they struggle to find uh, trained or qualified people that larger organizations or, or governments or companies have have deeper pockets, I guess. Yeah, okay. That, I think that, that makes sense because I asked this because, I don't know, for some reason, like I, I seem to watch a lot of these like plain documentaries. And then like more often than not, when they actually do um, like a deep dive recon on what happened, it's like, oh, we subcontracted it out and then the guy missed 13 steps of when he was doing maintenance on the aircraft and that's why the aircraft blew up. Like something that is documented didn't follow it. So would you say that that could be a thing as well? Because, I mean, we can say everything's documented and there's policies and process, but like getting a human being to actually adhere to all this documentation, whether or not it's part of their service level agreement or not, sometimes people are human beings, they make mistakes, there's an oversight, then we've got a problem. Well, certainly there is always the human factor and, and you know, human beings can make mistakes. Uh, I've been in organizations that have very rigid cybersecurity procedures, governments, for example, where it's required to have two people in the room to do a certain procedure and they sign off on each other. So very similar to uh, rigid procedures with regards to aircraft maintenance or any other sort of dangerous environment. I mean, we have situations in industrial environments where similar things have to happen just from a safety perspective. So the, pr- the processes to, to do these things exist. It's just a matter of you know, how much do they cost to ensure that uh, they get followed exactly the, the right way all the time? So you can imagine that the average cybersecurity uh, organization in a company isn't going to require two people to sign off on, on a given procedure to update the password on an account, for example. Um, that's usually beyond the 
uh, amount of uh, resources that they want to invest to uh, offset that risk. Whereas in some organizations, you know, take a, a civil aviation or military types of organizations, they will make those investments because the, the cost of failure is simply too high. Totally understand what you're saying. So when critical infrastructure does go down, which it does, which we are talking about today, there's more at stake, right? Then perhaps like an e-commerce company. Yes, it's sad. A big fashion retailer has gone down for whatever reason, whether it was DDoS or whatever happened. Yes, the company loses money, but no one's going to die really at the end of the day. So I'm curious to know, would you say that companies are like fully equipped in combating against these types of attacks? Because when you are dealing with like people's lives or, you know, gas station um, can't be like utilized, there's a lot more on the line than, oh, I can't order my favorite shoes online. Yeah, you know, for sure, critical infrastructure operations are by definition critical, right? So they're critical to society. And we go through uh, great lengths from an engineering perspective to make sure that they can operate in a safe and reliable manner. So if you go back to the colonial example that we've been using, you know, they proactively made the decision to shut that pipeline down uh, because they believed they were in a situation where they had the loss of of information or loss of view into the system, and, and they were concerned about the safety of, of the pipeline. So they proactively shut it down out of an abundance of caution, which I applaud. I think they made the right decision. Um, so I, I, I want to reiterate that the infrastructure itself is fairly safe and resilient. I mean, that's the reason we haven't seen uh, a plethora of, of these types of incidents that have spread um, wildly or, or uh, caused significant outages. Now, that being said, these industries have undergone a tremendous amount of uh, digital transformation, right? They're, they're modernizing these environments. They're becoming more dependent on these cyber uh, security or the cyber enabled devices, right? The industrial control system devices and things like that. So they need to make the investments in the uh, basic cybersecurity fundamentals in order to ensure that those systems do stay available and are reliable for the, the citizens and the societies that they support. You raise a good point around, obviously, when stuff like this happens, you do to make, make the call around like shutting it down. Do you think it's hard in that position to make that call? Obviously, of course, it's critical infrastructure, but then it's like more often than not, like, yes, people are going to agree with you, but then there's always going to be someone that's like, oh, you should have shut it down earlier or later, or there's always going to have this conflict of opinion, which is fair enough. But I'm curious to just understand perhaps like when you're in that position, it's very stressful. You, you've, you know, you are operating critical infrastructure. Like I mentioned before, it's not just like an e-com company. There's a lot more at stake. How do you manage those decisions and how do you then sort of disseminate that across your organization? In most cases, these kinds of companies have uh, operations people who have, have been in that chair um, for quite a while. And they make these decisions on a day-to-day -day basis from an all-hazards approach. So in a pipeline, for example, they're making these decisions if there's any sort of leakage or something like that on the pipeline, or they have a maintenance problem on the pipeline. So they make these decisions as part of their overall uh, daily routine, I would say. Uh, or they've also trained and exercised, you know, 
the scenarios, you know, if this happens, you know, push this red button and we will uh, take the appropriate steps. So really what they're doing, I think, now is having to add the cybersecurity into that equation. So I think it's sort of a natural instinctive reflex for them to implement their uh, emergency procedures, they just now have to uh, make cybersecurity a potential trigger there. So I think that the, the companies can actually fairly readily make those decisions. And once they have, it's it's the same procedure, uh, whether or not the cause was cyber or whether the cause was, you know, a, a natural sort of disaster type of occurrence. So just to press on a little bit more, so totally hear your, your thoughts on that. How do you then manage it from like a customer's perspective? Uh, because again, at the end of the day, yes, people are aware to a certain level, but people still do think about themselves and how they were inconvenienced. So how, how do you handle, uh, you know, people that perhaps are a bit angry or they don't know what's going on? Because again, like when you're doing like uh, crisis comms management, you don't want to speak too soon because you might not know, have all the information, but then if you don't speak enough, people think you're hiding something. How do you handle that from your perspective? It's interesting. I, I think that if you went back a few years, we didn't really talk about cybersecurity breaches or intrusions that much. Just in general, you know, companies were fairly tight-lipped about it because I think they were concerned about the reputational risk or the, the damage to their brand. Uh, Luckily, I think what we've seen is some transition in in that uh, area lately, so that companies are actually leaning forward and becoming much more transparent with regards to these types of issues. And I think that that's absolutely necessary. You know, in the United States, we see some new requirements from the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, that's going to require companies to disclose some of these types of things. So in my opinion, it's better for you know a company to lean in, uh, share what they can, when they can, uh, and it's going to be much easier on them than if they try to hide or cover up or uh, be tight-lipped about it, and then the public finds out about it later. Uh, that's that's always kind of a uh, you know ultimate damage control kind of plan if you have to go back and clean that up later. And then zooming out and just looking at any sort of breach or incident, uh, is it sort of just a default that you're just going to have to probably deal with disgruntled customers? So like, for example, uh, last year, I think with one of the major banks in Australia, they had like three outages and like people were just like, they were just going crazy um, about this. And admittedly, yes, it's a bank. It's a little bit different, but obviously still a lot of people are connected to it. They run their businesses through it. So I can understand the frustration. So do you think it's just normal that you're always just going to have people that you're going to get that backlash and you just sort of have to run its cause until eventually like the next thing happens and then they're on to complaining about the next thing that's happened in the world? Well, ultimately, I think that the the goal is is prevention. If we go back to the statements we made earlier about cybersecurity fundamentals, you know, if we do a good job of prevention, we can reduce the number of these types of incidents that that warrant that level of of a response. But yes, getting back to the sort of human aspects here, people are always going to be disappointed or angry if they don't have access to the product or service that they rely upon. And the more critical that the service is, you know, critical infrastructure, if it's electricity or water 
or what I call one of the lifeline sectors like that, you know, um, people's uh, health or, or their lives can be at risk. So these companies do go to great lengths to make sure that their products and services are reliable. But ultimately, yes, if they have an outage, they're going to have to deal with, you know, not only pressure from the government, not only pressure from their shareholders uh, or owners, but they're going to have to deal with pressure from their customers as well. So on that note, what steps do the government need to sort of implement to enhance the cyber preparedness of Australia's critical um, uh, critical infrastructure? We've sort of done like a, a 360 now. So obviously want to move towards the future and what things do look like, because it's not all bad stuff in here. I'm just sort of more so look, giving a, an overall view on the customer inside, a, inside an organisation, the government perspective. So yeah, I'm, ha- I'm happy to hear, you know, what are your thoughts? We certainly believe that governments around the world do need to, to kind of step up and, and take a more uh, active role in um, securing these these environments. So a baseline sort of standard of care, right? So every organization that provides a critical product or service, such as we've been talking about, should be required to prove that they're they're meeting some minimum amount of cybersecurity. Now, you know the 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 risk there, the caution that I have, is that governments can tend to try to get much too technically prescriptive and start to tell industry, oh, you need to have this widget doing this thing in your environment. You know, we actually believe that you have to have more objective or outcome-based standards. So tell the companies what you want them to accomplish rather than telling them how to do it because these companies are all different. Uh, the, the requirements in each of these sectors you know, vary wi- widely. Uh, an electrical um, distribution company in an urban area, one of the major Australian cities, is is significantly different than a small water supply system that's in in the rural uh, outback, for example. And so you need to have some flexibility in how those uh, how those things are done. Why do you think they have traditionally been sort of technically prescriptive? Uh, is that just by default? It was just easier. I do exactly hear what you're saying. Everyone's different. It should be outcomes based. So I'm curious to know, like, why wasn't why wasn't it sort of pitched in terms of it should be outcomes based from the get go? I think if you look at it, it's easier to do the the technical control that is is easier to measure. You know, we we go in and we say, well, have you installed antivirus? Yes or no? Or do you have a firewall? Yes or no? Um, and uh, when we look at that from a compliance perspective, and you know, we we've, we've talked about this not you and I tonight, but in the government and industry relations. Um, area, you know, we've talked about this almost till we're blue in the face that, you know, compliance does not necessarily equate to security. So it's hard to define these uh, outcome-based objectives, right? I mean, you have to actually sort of think about the problem uh, in a different way than just putting some technical security controls that, that, a compliance auditor can tick the box on. So would you say it's easier or do you think people are just lazier perhaps 
Uh, I don't know if it's laziness. I mean, from my government experience, you know, I think that everybody kind of jokes at the typical government worker. But, you know, our team was very, very uh, focused on on trying to do what was best for our partners in industry and government alike. So, you know, we were going to do the right thing, uh, no matter what was easy or not. It's just that I think it's a, a holdover from the compliance reporting days where you could go around with a clipboard and ask some simple questions and then determine the security posture of a company. I think it's more complex than that. And you have to really boil down uh, what are you trying to achieve and then um, build those metrics or measurements around that. And so from your understanding, what I've heard today, like that is changing phase. We are moving towards this outcome of this is what we're chasing rather than, yes, I'm going to go around with a clipboard and ask you 500 questions on yes or no answers. We are. And I think that technology is helping to do that. You know, we, we, when I first came into security with, with these critical infrastructure or industrial control systems, we tried to apply sort of IT cybersecurity technology to it. And, and quite frankly, we broke those systems. They just weren't used to being poked and prodded by the IT tools that we had. And now I think 10 years later, we've certainly uh, developed very customized technology to operate in these critical environments. And so we can do a better job uh, from this, you know, sort of real time or continuous monitoring of these environments and, and figure out how to roll that up into the appropriate measurements or key performance indicators to indicate the health of the system. So do you believe that with the Australian government enforcing the right practices, we should start to see a decline in these types of attacks? It's interesting, and I'm going to be very careful with my use of words here. Um, the number of attacks isn't necessarily related to um, the the success rate or the uh, defendability of the system, right? So you're going to have adversaries, whether they're criminal groups or nation state groups that are looking for intelligence or looking to profit off of your environment. They're going to continue to scan and probe and attack. Um, hopefully, our cybersecurity defenses will be strong enough to ward off that attack. And so you're, you'll see a decrease, I think, in the number of successful intrusions in these environments if we take those basic steps. But I don't think it would be correct or accurate to say that we would see a decrease in the number of attacks. Yes. Yeah, so definitely, okay, in the successful attacks, so you, you would say as a rule of thumb that it will decrease over time? I would think so. I mean, we also have to take into consideration the transformation that's going on in these environments, right? So you have to be, um, I think, careful with the, the measurements that you take, uh, because if you're just measuring total volume of uh, successful attacks, of course, it depends on how many, uh, how large the attack surface is, right? You know, so how many of these systems are there out there? So if you're looking at it from a percentage basis or a ratio basis, uh, I do believe that defenders uh, ultimately have the upper hand. They should know their environments better than any attacker ever can. And if they take the right steps to harden those environments, have the right response plans in place, and have the, the right personnel that are on guard, sort of, uh, you know, maintaining those environments at that level of readiness, we should be able to accomplish that. 
I guess it just goes back to my point uh, originally, like on paper, yes, in theory, you're 100% right. But then like in reality, or it, it's a lot harder to do that. Because I mean, you can go to a company and ask them X questions and they're like, oh, I don't know that answer. Or I'm not sure. Or I don't actually know where, you know, X, Y, and Z is. I don't know what I've got. So do you think that perhaps it's just going to be a maturation of the industry? Um, because yes, you are right. We'd like to hope that our defenders do know um, but sometimes there are blind spots. I, I liken it to what happened in the safety area over the last 40 or 50 years. You know, there were significant safety issues and events in chemical processing plants or around electrical safety, for example. And we saw governments and industry work together to develop you know, very specific safety requirements. So in the United States, we have the uh, we have OSHA, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, and and they have very rigid um, requirements for uh, you know safety programs and how you have to report safety incidents, etc. And that's required a culture shift, right? You don't even dare to walk into one of these types of industrial or manufacturing environments without the proper um, personnel protective equipment like your hard hat or your steel-toed boots, because they're going. Somebody's going to ask you about it, and and it'll be anybody. It'll be the individual at the front gate. It, it may be somebody behind a desk, or it may be somebody out in the field. But if they see you without the right uh, helmet on, they're going to call you out and and ask you, "Where's your helmet?" I think we just need to have a cultural shift in the security world that everybody feels empowered to question how we're doing things. Everybody feels empowered to say, oh, this might be a security type of issue. We should think about um, how we're implementing that. And I think if we get to that level of sort of cultural acceptance, um, we can certainly get there. And just lastly on that note around cultural acceptance, I mean, depends on who you ask and who you speak to. People have very differences of opinions. Do you think that things have become easier like culturally but then I've also seen like for example when there's like a massive breach I've just seen people like trolling people online and like we should be trying to have empathy and actually help them and assist them rather than saying oh well, you know they didn't do the thing and they should have done it this way when they actually weren't there and they can read everything to the nth degree on the internet but they really weren't there at, you know during the incident so I'm just curious to know like which way are we going like perhaps it's difficult it's it's a it's a challenging conversation as you say sort of the information or disinformation that can spread very very quickly throughout social media uh, can pit us against each other right so there certainly will always be folks that will argue any point or any perspective that is put out there. And, you know, I think that we just have to stand firm and have a very clear cut communications plan. So if you're an organization or a company, you know, you should be, uh, you should have training and exercises around uh, drills around this. You know, if we had a cybersecurity incident and this, this, and this happened, how are we going to communicate that to the public? Who do we have to report that to within the government? Where are our disaster recovery um, facilities? You know, it's something as simple as, do you have a, a hard copy on paper in the control room of the phone numbers of the executives and the 
the press, the media relations people, the the shareholder people, uh, you know, all of the people that you need to to make telephone calls to. Because if you suffer a ransomware event and your computers are all locked up and encrypted, and you can't access the company phone directory, you're 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 uh, going to have some problems. Right? So so you know you have to really you have to really think through uh, and go back to those basics as as far as you have to have that red binder that you can pull off the shelf and and it has to be updated and kept up to date and it has to be tested. And so companies should have these types of disaster recovery or business continuity um, plans and exercises and, and test them regularly. I guess it just goes back to an overall theme of the amount of people that I've spoken to that work with companies. They're just like, you'd think so in theory. They don't have that. They don't have anything. Or it's like, oh, we updated um, you know, a disaster recovery plan like in 1984 and those people don't work here and they haven't worked here for 30 years. So I guess it, it, it's it's – we want to be able to do that, but I guess there needs to be the culture of actually practicing this. Now, I can say this because uh, I used to work in a very large uh, Australian like shopping center, and you had to we had to do this toolbox. So, if this incident happened, how would we respond to that? We used to do that every week. There was security manager would come in, and he would actually walk through different like scenarios and how we'd respond to that. I'm really strapped to find companies that I previously worked in that did that at all, uh, always regularly. So I like to hope that that's the right intention, but perhaps there definitely needs to be some level of improvement. There does have to be some level of improvement. You know, it's it's a, a goal or, or an objective that, that companies should have these things. And, and I've been involved with incident response activities in companies that had very well practiced plans. You know, some of of these critical infrastructure companies, um, you know, for example, in the, the natural disaster area, we have hurricanes hit certain portions of the United States. Of course, you know, you have tropical storms uh, and the like that that hit Australia as well. And they're very well practiced on how to respond to those types of events. And they can leverage those same processes and procedures for cyber events, right? So, you know, we have the sort of institutional knowledge and capability to do these. We just have to pivot them, uh, pivot those capabilities uh, and consider them in cybersecurity incidents. Well, that's all we have time for today. So I really appreciate you coming on the show, Marty, and sharing your knowledge and your insight and your wisdom. And I think also, uh, you know, you, you just gave a very practical viewpoint about what's happening out there and perhaps some food for thought for people to, to learn from, you know, this episode today to start implementing with their team. So I really appreciate you coming on the show today. No problem. It was a great pleasure for me. So thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in. We hope that you found today's episode useful and you took away a few key points. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get our latest episodes. If you'd like to find out how KBI can help grow your cyber business, then please head over to kbi.digital. This podcast was brought to you by KBI.media, the voice of cyber.